Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have some really great people that join you in the chat room every week, Ravinder, so tell us all about it, please. We do have some great people. I've made some really good friends um, out of there. I've learned a lot from them. Everyone brings their own life experience to it, and so... You know, when you've got a question, there's normally someone there that's got some suggestions of answers. So, you know, it is very, very helpful, too. So do come join us. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. And then if we discuss any uh, earls, you post them in the chat room. And you usually have a video uh, that we show uh, at the top of the hour or at the bottom of the hour, I should say. And if someone is listening but they can't get to the chat room, uh, does that have any real It is up there, yeah. If you go into the archives for the show, you can play the show, you know, after the fact as well. But then we have the chat room posted right there. So you can go in there and flick through it and pick out any of the pertinent information or just join in the conversation. Well, you don't join the conversation, but you can listen in on the conversation afterwards, yes. All right. In this week's spotlight, I would like to address stress. Not the typical form of stress brought about by life circumstances, but the stress attached to this election cycle. A recent poll indicates that 51% of Americans are experiencing serious stress directly brought on by this election. Indeed, the emotions run high and not in just two directions, but also among the many who find both candidates entirely unacceptable. In my book, Gotcha! The Subordination of Free Will, you will find a detailed account of the many ways we are psychologically massaged and manipulated. The tools are many, and they are all known by the manipulators who are currently profiting as a result of billions of dollars in research to discover just how best to plumb the minds of the masses. Little tricks that have profound psychological impact are employed to build anger, hatred, and even rage at times and on both sides of the aisle. It is precisely this emotional involvement that creates the distress so many are experiencing. Our politicians seem to be at their best when they pivot, project, and position their opponent in some ugly light. Issues of government are of lesser concern, or so it would seem in this election. And unfortunately, as much as we may complain about the nasty rhetoric, attacks, and name-calling, the negative ads and press have been proven in studies to work. In fact, lies repeated over and over again have been shown to become truths in the minds of many, despite later refutations, proving the lie to be unfounded and totally false. But all of this, the data, the methods, the tricks, and the entire box of psychological tools, together with how, when, and where, 
they have been employed on the public by our government in the past can be found in my book, Gotcha. However, the point here is not about how or why the aim is to anger and otherwise incite your emotions. Rather, it's about what you can do about it. For years, research has repeatedly demonstrated that stress is a matter of perception. What stresses one person may be joyful to another. For instance, skydiving may be fun for one person and a terror to another. Public speaking may be a great opportunity embraced warmly for one and bring a near breakdown to another. And I could go on, but I'm sure you get the point. It's how we perceive a stimulus that determines our stress response. As such, the trick to becoming stress-free is to be found in altering our perceptions. In about three weeks, the election will be over. Between now and then, I suggest you turn down the volume. Take a few moments every day to express gratitude for all that you have, including life itself. Refuse to engage in vitriolic exchanges. Make your own informed decision, and then, of course, vote. Stress can lead to serious health consequences, so please don't let it just accumulate. Find a happy place in your mind and enjoy a little serenity every day. Understand that sometimes it's simply time to turn matters over to a higher power and let be what will be. Life will go on when this election is over. The cortisol and other neurochemicals that result from distress, however, may not dissipate so quickly, and they can have a lasting impact on your health and well-being. Whenever I'm asked how to stay focused and positive, I always suggest this little trick. When you first awake in the morning, put a big smile on your face. For no reason, smile. You see, the brain doesn't distinguish between a fake smile and a real one. Just using these facial muscles triggers a response in the brain that releases endorphins, those feel-good chemicals. Then say, thank you, thank you, thank you. This will set your day up with a positive expectation, and you will find that this alone will lead to a much improved lifestyle. My thoughts anyway. What are yours, Ravinder? You know, I have to admit to be one of those people that is finding this situation really, really stressful. You know, I've talked to you about it as well. Um, you know, I've got a couple of advantages, I suppose. I've read Gotcha, so I'm aware of some of the tricks and tactics. So when we watch the debates, I point out, oh, that's what they're doing here and that's what they're doing here and that's why they're dressed in this color and that's why it's this shape or, you know, all of those tactics. So. I get a bit of an advantage there, but this is just a horrible campaign season. It's just nasty in every single direction. So, yeah, in addition to, um, you know, putting on a smile on your face, I've been finding some of my own stress, uh, de-stress tactics, which include singing at the top of my voice, especially when the place is empty, you know, either the house or the office. If it's empty, I will let it go sing at the top of my voice and dance around and jiggle around. The dogs think it's an absolute blast and they like election season because <laughs> mummy starts being very, very silly. But it, it is a great way to relieve stress. There's a great deal of science behind that. And you do have to control stress because as Dr. Swab said, and he was on your show just a few weeks ago, that stress axis can get turned on p 
permanently, semi-permanently, you know, you reach a point where you're getting bad chemicals in your system even after the event. So you have to take manual control over it all and work to de-stress. You have some inner talk programs for stress as well. So (laughs) just put it on, relax to the music and automatically program your subconscious to relax and let go. Now, I haven't been dancing, and I admit I haven't been singing, but I have been using the inner talk, and I am going to install cameras now so I can catch you in the act, <laughs> share it on Facebook. Oh, that, that, that will make everyone feel better. It will be the best comedy show ever. Like, oh, my God, what the heck is she doing? Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our guest was Lisa McCourt and we discussed her work and books, including her latest contribution to When Heaven Touches Earth. John wrote, loved your show with Lisa. She is a bundle of honest joy. Samantha wrote, I really like Lisa's approach to all this negative election stuff. Find something in both candidates that you like instead of focusing on their negatives. That's good advice. CB wrote, this cycle, I have really stepped back to watch the mass manipulation techniques and have taken the election less seriously as it appears Hillary was anointed from Jump Street. Just that even the number of people supporting Sanders were seeing and then apparently being vindicated by statisticians and leaked DNC emails and lawsuits against primary ballot manipulation, and the Clinton train is still on track. The DNC has not even bothered to counter that the emails were falsified, just that it is an election manipulation to let the public know what the DNC and their major candidate actually think about the electorate. Wow. Rose wrote, just listen to Lisa's conversation with Eldon Taylor, interesting and eye-opening. Moving on, Daniel wrote regarding my book, Choices and Illusions. Love the book. Love my inner talk library. Thank you, Eldon. Well, thank you, Daniel. That's nice. Michael wrote, I do really miss the longer provocative enlightenment shows. Well, I do as well, Michael, but it's so very hard to syndicate a two-hour show that we felt forced to return to the one-hour format. But we really are able to dig down deeper when we have that two hours, aren't we, Rev? Yeah, we are. Mel wrote, oh my gosh, I found a show again. Yay. I missed you all for years. Happy to have found the show again. Well, welcome back, Mel. He was in the chat room last week, didn't he? Yes. Okay. We did move, and that's caused some confusion for many. So tell your friends where we are now so that they, too, can join us. All right. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But I do invite you to opine by emailing me at Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at eldentaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. We sincerely appreciate your comments and feedback. Now to this week's show, Universal Spiritual Philosophy and Practice with author David, Dr. David Lowe. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. His copy reads, and I quote, David Lowe, MS, PhD, is an author, former adjunct professor of religion and drug counselor who today does dream work, teaches meditation, and speaks on topics in popular spirituality and religion. After some powerful meditation experiences, Dr. Lowe traveled extensively and visited different Hindu, Buddhist, Sikh, Sufi, Jewish, Christian, and Orthodox religions. Hmm, this copy is kind of messed up, I think. 
An epiphany in 2014 led him to write his first book, Universal Spiritual Philosophy and Practice, in an informal textbook for discerning seekers. His greatest passion is getting people to tune into more profound dimensions of spirituality at both the personal and political levels. Close quote. All right, now Dr. Lowe earned his MS in community counseling at Georgia State University and his PhD in religious studies from Temple University. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. David Lowe. Thank you, Eldon. It's great to be on the show. Well, good, sir. Listen, we we like to know three things or get three things out of our our guests on this show. Who is the messenger? What is the message and how do we use it? So let's begin with tell us a little bit about yourself and what, you know, led to your interest in spiritual philosophy. I've always had a profound interest in you know the inner self, you might say. I didn't really recognize it as a young person or a teenager. But when I started doing transcendental meditation in college, and, later, and then later got, uh, got initiations from um, a number of powerful spiritual teachers. And then my major one, um, I was kind of blasted open and began having a series of very powerful cathartic experiences, which has gone on for about three decades. And my perception has really sort of expanded. I mean, <clears throat> I'm not enlightened, and I do think enlightenment exists, but I'm not there yet. But I do perceive the universe in a much more unified, holistic way than I used to, visually. When um, you were young, were you raised in a religious family, uh, or no, was it no. the TM training in college that turned you on? It's primarily the uh, TM training in college who really got me going. Um, um, no, I was just a regular, you know, uh, Christmas, Easter church attendee twice a year, um, going around Christmas time. I sang in the choir. But no real interest. Um, I recognized early on that you know Orthodox religion is primarily about social structure and um, convention, supporting conventions, which is fine, but it wasn't for me. So I kind of moved on fairly soon from that. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, you heard today's spotlight, uh, Dr. Lowe. What are your thoughts on the stress this election cycle has placed on so many? And do you... Do you find some spiritual something or other unfolding from all this vitriol and enmity? Yeah, I do think we're in a time of um, intensified transformation, and that, you know, Mr. Trump represents probably the last gasp of the old male patriarchy. And Hillary Clinton, for all her faults, does represent an underlying and badly needed feminine quality in all of the Western religions and in society in general. So I think it is a time of transformation and that um, things will soon improve. Uh, but it's just a matter of having faith and, like you say, of finding those, those moments of serenity. So, yeah, I think it's a matter of larger, longer-term awareness of planetary evolution, of national evolution. We all play a part in that. We can't, we can't you know... We can't isolate ourselves. We all need to participate now more than ever uh, in whatever good we think we can do. Yeah. I have to ask you this since, you know, I think you made it clear in that last answer that you're a pro-Clinton person. Um, Well, amongst the best of two evils, yeah, absolutely I am. Okay. Um, Mr. Uh, Trump. Go ahead. Sorry. No, you go ahead. I don't want to cut you off. Mr. Trump, you said you began. Well, it's, it's, it's very... Interesting how, um, you know, I mean, in a sense, he he represents 
the deepest, darkest tendencies that we all need to eventually look at. Um, there is deep in our minds, there are powerful, impure segments of our psychology split off from all the rest of it, for most of us anyway. We all have deep traumas and profound issues of pain and suffering and so forth. And our minds get warped at super deep levels just to endure that. You know, so he represents, as it were, you know, the shadow, the shadow element that we all now, now that have sounds, to cope with. That sounds like Deepak Chopra. Is, you read Chopra, I take it, and, and oh, his sure. comments. Yeah. So what you're doing is you're parroting back a lot of what Chopra said, you, and you found that to be credible. Well, he says it pretty well, as well as a lot of other people have also said it. Now, you can really only, someone, a situation like this, you could really only, I mean, I, I can only understand it in terms of evolution of the nation, of the planet, and of the inevitable tendency. I mean, things get, the excesses of modern society become greater and greater and greater and greater until they have to manifest in a certain focused way for us to recognize them. You know. okay, okay, now, Dr. Lowe, I'm going to take advantage of you because I'm undecided on this election, okay? Okay. So I, I'm just going to play devil's advocate for a minute. <clears throat> when you look at the shadow, and, and, you know, it was Bly that really gave us a deep understanding of the shadow, although that's Jung's concept originally, Robert Bly in his little book on the human shadow really spelled out this Iron dark John, side. Iron John, you mean? Iron John? Iron John? That's a seminal book, Robert Bly, Iron John. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but uh, he's – Robert Bly has a a book that is called The Little Book on the Human Shadow. Uh It's edited by William Booth, and it's only – it's just that section about the human shadow, okay? He talks Uh about the long bag, and, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, okay? But so if we pursue this idea of the of the shadow, we're really talking about attributes of the human condition that we that we look on with great disfavor because they are ignoble, period, end of quotation, like larceny, dishonesty. Um, uh-huh. when, you, when you look at Hillary Clinton and you look at all these emails that have leaked out, you look at, at this new video of how... Democratic operatives actually incited riots at Trump rallies, and and you read about you you, you discover the pay for play, and you see uh, the negotiations with the FBI to declassify documents, uh, in, in what what is according to the FBI agent involved himself an attempt at quid pro quo, which would be bribery, it's just criminal, and and then you you see all these deceptions. Are they not also of the shadow? All this is par for the course. I mean, one thing we have to accept about modern society is that, sure, over the last 40, 50 years, more than that, democracy, our three branches of government have succumbed further and further into a, honest-to-goodness, oligarchy, you know, ruled by the wealthy and so forth. Um, So, um, you know, politicians have become more and more systemically corrupt to a certain extent including our latest, to some degree. Um, But it's better than having a sociopath at the helm who meets all the psychiatric criteria for a master manipulator who does know the difference between right and wrong, and who clearly, at least, you know, 
what amazes me about you know Trump's supporters is that they that so many of them actually seem to think that he doesn't mean two thirds of the things that he says. Um, that to me is an astounding fact that they actually think that he doesn't mean much of what he says. That is really frightening. Um, so yeah, it's I, I, it, it, it's a matter of degree. This society is what it is, and um, I do think that there has been a our, our democracy and our system of government have inevitably declined for all sorts of reasons relating to influence and so on. And I think that the tide can be turned. Things can improve. And I think, I mean, every election... Interesting, interesting take. However we should, as a, you're not trained as a psychologist. You're not trained to uh, label Trump as a sociopath. I get a uh, master's, so, yeah. I get a master's, but I am not a... Uh, I am not a ID. You're right. 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 So so the bottom line is, okay, maybe he is, maybe he isn't, maybe he fits the the description. General descriptions can be cast about and we can fit them on on almost all our politicians. But I just, you know, just want to get that clarified. We're not calling him a sociopath. That's uh, you're basically saying he may have some of these tendencies. Well, there's no question. I mean, I mean, one thing that you do pick up from studying psychology even at the master's level, or even as an undergraduate, and doing a fair amount of reading and history and so forth, you, you pick up the reality that, I mean, many world leaders are good people. Many elected politicians, presidents of countries are you know, well, have a solid morality and are good human beings and so forth, but some aren't. It is astounding the extent to which you know, people get into positions of power who are, who are psychopaths. Uh, who are master manipulators, and you, you see it over and over again, and he fits this pattern. You're right and, about um, that. Hmm? You're right yes. about that, and historically that has been very, very, very true. Okay, let's leave the politics. Let's right. get on with some of the ideas in your book. You say belief doesn't matter. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is, um, you know, uh, what really matters in, in, uh, in one's spiritual quest is what you actually feel, your experience. And also, probably the main thing to bear in mind about belief is that there are different ways of believing the same thing, right? There's literal belief, which is associated with, with, with as far as the religions are concerned, with the most danger and arguments and warfare and so forth. The most literal belief is, of course, the most inflexible Right, leading to the most warfare and arguments, and then there's literal slash metaphorical allegorical belief. So most people, most educated folks who follow the religions, uh, believe some stuff literally, but some stuff metaphorically and allegorically. So they don't, they realize that uh, that that you know, um, um, the church fathers embellished, for example, it's generally agreed by most mainstream uh, Catholic and mainline Protestant scholars that uh, the Church Fathers embellished the Gospel, for example, for the sake of mass appeal. They were creating a religion, you know, and they needed to make certain stories more spectacular than they actually occurred like. So, so um, I don't mean to interrupt, but while you're on that point, so does that mean that, um, say, the miracles that uh, we read about uh, that Jesus performed, uh, right. there may be false to fact? There are embellishments? I, I, well, you know... Um, 
Orthodox religion has always relied upon spectacular stories uh, to get people interested. I think it's possible that some of that stuff could have happened the way the Bible says, but it's unlikely. In my experience, the way that miracles usually happen, like say, for example, you go visit a great spiritual master, say a Hindu guru or something like that. Um, you have a nice experience. You give him a donation. Um, he comes, he shows up in your dreams that night, does some body work for you, and then two weeks later, your cancer's gone. That sort of thing happens around contemporary masters all the time, but it doesn't make the tabloids, you know? So, I mean, mm-hmm. raising, someone from the, raising somebody from the dead or turning water into wine or having leprosy vanish before your eyes, that gets written up in the tabloids. That makes the National Enquirer. So those are, uh, that's why, you know, most scholars think that most of that stuff, I mean, I, I should say liberal-thinking um, scholars associated mostly with Catholicism and, and mainline Protestant groups tend to think that some of that stuff, at least, is embellished. The you know conservative, charismatic, fundamentalist scholars think it's all true, literally. But right. you know, and I, and I want to pursue that, but we've got a break coming up. And when we come back, I'm going to ask you very specifically about parthenogenesis, uh, virgin birth, and uh, let's pick it up from there. We're speaking with Dr. David Lowe about his life and book, Universal Spiritual Philosophy and Practice. You can learn more about Dr. Lowe by visiting his website at davidlowemsphd.com. Now, we have a video for you in our chat room today addressing the subject of Native American universal and spiritual laws of creation. So if you're not in the chat room already, now's the time to get on over there. Do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor.
And welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. David Lowe about his life and book, Universal Spiritual Philosophy and Practice. Again, you can learn more about Dr. Lowe by visiting his website at davidlowemsphd.com. Now we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology is a new interest of mine, and it is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. Okay, we just played some of Also Spoke, Zarathustra. Why is this one important to you, and how does it tell us more about you, Dr. Lowe? Well, that piece is more, probably brings to mind more feelings and profound sentiments relating to, you know, a transcendent origin of mankind. I mean, this is the, you know, the, the, the evolution of intelligence from microbe to Spinoza, if you will. And in the context of the movie 2001, where it was used, you right. remember if you ever saw the movie, the ape taking the, uh, taking the club that he just killed another ape with and throwing it into the air, right? And that, right. And that club turns into a spaceship. You know, it's, it's just the, uh, the, uh, the significance, power, and, and beauty of the evolution of the human spirit from the animal stage up to the divine stage. It's kind of what it brings to mind. That's why I like it so much. <clears throat> interesting, interesting. I, when I think of it, I think about the evolution of artificial intelligence and uh, how we're on the threshold of perhaps having, uh, you know, a form of artificial intelligence begin to do everything for us and maybe even tell us what to do. Yeah, pretty much, although I don't, you know, I mean, <clears throat> I think that is one of the, I think, that's a very important part of planetary evolution has been the you know development of social media and the ability to communicate all over the planet, which has made us aware of the moral dilemmas we all face across borders and national boundaries. We all got to get along and start doing things together or we're toast. The social media has allowed us to understand that. But I think on an, in, on an individual level, um, the tendency to, to, to retreat autistically into playing video games and looking at your iPhone all the time uh, has been spiritually disastrous. So a lot of people are, you know, they're being run and sort of depersonalized. The soul is being sucked out of them by these machines that they're, that they're tied to. It's, it's this very subtle form of, like, uh, delayed, gratifica- rather, delayed gratification or addiction, I'm sorry, is the term I want to use, in connection with needing to see what the next person is saying about you on Twitter and Facebook, having right. to keep it, up 24-7 with, with, with what all your friends are saying. That's the problem. It's not only addictive, uh, but the data shows clearly that uh, it's utilized to program us. And so when you talk about spirituality and then you understand how much of the programming is designed to change our culture, um, and intentionally so, um, and we seem to be moving more towards this, uh, you know, secular, progressive, uh, uh, cultural, relative, reductionistic, materialistic perspective in all of our universities, especially among liberals today. Now, I'm not when I say that, I, I mean, you know, liberal liberal schools that I wonder if it doesn't challenge the very roots of spirituality. Well, I think that 
the most profound thing about generally, I think, what you're referring to is that um, there needs to be a falling away of all old beliefs and notions relating to what used to be sacrosanct, okay, in order for a new understanding, a new profound realization and experience to emerge from underneath. You know, I, I do think that there is something connecting us underneath, a, a powerful underlying spiritual reality which links all of us across all cultures, languages, and so forth. But in order to feel that and experience it, all this other stuff has to get out of the way. All of our own notions connected with our cultures, our religions, our notions about uh, about our, our our egotistical involvements with 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 material things, with scholarly ideas, um, all that needs to fall away to tune into a deeper reality. Which okay, is, Les, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead, sir. No, I, I was going to say that, you know, it, it's deeper than right and wrong, deeper than hot and cold, deeper than liberal and conservative. It is a profound kind of harmony and goodness which embraces it all, which will allow all of us to somehow get along more harmoniously. But to do that, we have to let go of all these old ideas. And just, you know, this this is what social media is starting to do. Um, so are you are and, you saying, am I, am I to take from that that there are, I mean, this is a subject that we have discussed many times on this show with uh, a number of different uh, uh, sorts of scholars, shall we say, or gurus, and uh, and that's the issue of right and wrong. Are you saying that there is no such thing as uh, right or wrong? There is a profound sense of what is good, beautiful, and true. It's an experience. It is a it it it. It is an experience of harmony with all reality around you. And that harmony will tweak right and wrong in just the right way to help everybody else get it. Okay? Okay, okay um, but that, you're pivoting somewhat on me. Let me let me just ask you very directly. Uh, you know, I'll use an example we've used many times on this show. 14-year-old girl sold by her father to, to a Pakistani husband, she fails to perform adequately, displeases him. He cuts her, eye, her ears and her nose off, ships her out to the stable. Uh, she crawls home. Um, parents can't have anything to do with her. They shun her and hush her away. Fortunately, Women for Women cover this woman up, send her to the States, and she has surgery. Was it wrong that this girl was treated that way? Absolutely, it was wrong. Absolutely, okay. that's wrong. So there, there are wrongs in the world. Uh, we we have an underlying um, sense that there are some absolute wrongs in the world. Well, it was wrong, but in the larger scheme of things, it was, in a sense, inevitable. You know, reality is it. Reality is pure gray area and pure sliding of scale. The difficulty here is that, you know, in practical terms, we do need to make, we do, we do need to draw a line in the sand and say this is right and this is wrong. At the same time, we need to be aware that the way reality is inextricably links everything together so that a lot of wrongs eventually turn into a right. But no, you, in, in the, absolutely, that is a absolute wrong in practical okay. terms, no question about it. But you just used a word inevitable, and when you use the word inevitable, that's a doctrine of um, predestination. That's that's it. Is that where you're going? 
No. Now, predestination is one aspect of the way reality works, but it also, I mean, there's both predestination and free will. They both happen at the same time. That's the mystery. You know, I mean, you, you can't say that... Um, well, they're will mutually totally exclusive right. by the nature of semantics, so this would have to be some kind of underlying miracle because you just defined a round square table. Yeah. Yeah, well, this, I mean, uh, we're talking about things that, 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 that words cannot really specify or designate. These are profound experiences, profound notions, which we begin to experience when we can just give up all our conventional notions about what's good, what's bad, and become more tolerant and embracing of everything. When we can do that, when we can make friends with even the most, even the most heinous aspects of reality on some level, and embrace it all somehow in one grand understanding that we do have an experience of profound harmony in which somehow it all fits together into one perfect whole. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't say certain things are wrong and imprison people and so forth. But at the same time, there must be an embracing understanding of how everything is somehow right, just as it is right now. Okay, neuroscientists show us that... um on average, six seconds before we're going to make a decision, a choice. Right. Our subconscious mind actually makes that choice. And then the conscious mind makes up a reason for why we made the choice. So we watch activity in the brain in real time. And an fMRI technician will know six seconds in advance what you're going to choose. He'll record it with 100% accuracy. Six seconds on average before you know. What? How does that fit into this scheme of inevitable or predestined and or free will all simultaneously? I'll bet you he didn't do those studies with spiritual masters. Okay, there are people you can do those studies with, people of average level of spiritual development, in which that, in which that sense of harmony and integration hasn't occurred very much yet. And in that case, there will be disparate operations in the brain of a more or less typical kind, in which part of your brain says one thing, the rest of your brain says, well, no, not yet. We have to get everything right first, and then all of the nerves come together and you actually do it. Uh, for someone who is far along this path of integration or is enlightened, and I do think there is such a thing as enlightenment and that more and more people are getting it, um, there is a physiological harmonization, which I think if that person were to do those experiments on certain individuals I know, the results would be very different. Okay, well, it's, you know, many neurologists have done this, and it's work that really springs from uh, about 1956 with a man by the name of Benjamin Libet, who was just using an EEG at the time, but, of course, we use functional magnetic resonance imaging today. And, I mean, some of these uh, non-masters or Harvard grads that are actually the subjects of this so the kind of master you're talking about is a spiritual master. And we've had, you know, neurologists on this show that have actually monitored also the brain activity and brain changes in, in nuns and uh, meditators that have been trained right. for years and years and years. And, yeah. and their brains all seem to work the same way. So um, this must be a very rare group of people you're talking about, not the masses at all. And if that's no, you're, the instance... You're probably right, actually. Um, 
a, a way to explain that from the standpoint of decision making is that there is a paradoxical process. I mean, things happen perfectly at the time when they're supposed to happen. So um, someone who makes a decision in complete harmony with reality at the time, that decision is completely spontaneous. One interesting thing that 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 you get from reading the autobiographies of these people and from studying their discourses and sayings and so forth is that in the enlightened state, memory doesn't seem to exist most of the time in the way that we normally think of it. There's instantaneous download. I mean, a person doesn't know anymore. If, he, if, if uh, an enlightened person needs to study a uh, needs to study a manual of a chainsaw, if he wants to know how to use it, but um, there is a paradoxical downloading of whatever they need to say at the time and, and at the moment. Now, their brain will continue to function in the normal, um, you know, mechanistic moment-by-moment uh, moment fashion. At the, so, so even though their decisions are totally spontaneous, the brains at the same time go through the normal linear process of making the decision. So for the, for the bulk of the folks, all but for a very few, as a matter of fact, on this planet, uh, they're acting out a, um, a script that is more or less already decided and in some sense kind of puppets until and unless they become uh, masters, to use your word. Have I got that right? Well, one of the insights that you get from not only spiritual masters, but more often actually from you know psychologists who are far along the spiritual path and, and, and who have researched this sort of thing, is that, of, of, I mean, of course, we're all programmed by our subconscious. I mean, much of what we do moment to moment is we don't have any, in, in a real sense, we more or less do involuntarily. And the further you go along the spiritual path, the more aware you become of everything. Um, but um, what was I going to say? Gosh, I lost my train of thought. Oh, yeah, okay. I do think that you know, there are people, I've, I've, I've known a number of seekers, older guys who, I, there are eight or nine people I know who, They've been seeking all their life, have all kinds of powerful experiences. And then they had one transformative, transformative experience which blew away all their other experiences by a mile, and which they describe as complete and final. Um, so spiritually, they're cooked. They're done. You know, They continue to change and grow as human beings, but their spiritual aspect is completely finished off. So I do think enlightenment exists. It's, it is a paradoxical state. And it involves a situation in which you are no longer programmed by any aspect of of your subconscious, which I think is a, again it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a normal human condition. And enlightenment. Much... How... Go ahead. Sorry. No, I don't want to cut you off. Go ahead, no, no, Doctor. That, I was All I right. was carrying on about enlightenment. So you no, know, I do think that um, you know the way the brain operates in a normal person and in an enlightened person is pretty pretty much the same. I would suspect overall, but um, in the case of the enlightened individual lives in a reality of complete joy and spontaneity that um, essentially, you know, um, it basically imposes a paradox upon the brain's functioning in that he does everything spontaneously and joyfully and exactly right, even though his brain continues to operate in the normal linear fashion. Like I was All right. Saying. Now, <laughs> what you're describing uh, to me sounds very Buddhist 
in its uh-huh. sense. And it is mindfulness kinds of training that's a part of the awakening process leading to the epiphany uh, that Plotinus called the ineffable experience. Right. And, okay, so I, I'm going to have to drill down there a little bit and ask you, Buddhism is essentially an atheistic religion, which in itself seems to be, you know, a bit of an oxymoron, because how can it be a religion if it's also atheistic? But well, the very, it, go ahead. Go ahead, please. Well, the, the very idea, the thing that gets most in the way of the experience of God is a notion and concept of God itself. Mm-hmm. So his idea was that, you know, it, it, it actually... It actually causes more problems than somebody's spirituality to give God a name and to call it something. So, for Buddhists, there is something out there, but the most, but it's best not to try to call it or anything. So, um, it is a non-theistic faith in its Zen manifestation. Um, original, original Indian Buddhism and Zen is non-theistic. The rest of the tradition is fairly theistic, actually. But the original folks in Buddhism and Zen are primarily non-theistic in their orientation. That's because they think that they understand that, you know, the very concept of God, that itself is the thing which, which, which often prevents you the most from experiencing, experiencing it. Okay, I've got you there. All right, listen, I promised before the break that we would come back to miracles, which was what our right. show was about last week. Um, parthenogenesis is something we see in all, well, I shouldn't say all, but the majority of extant living religions, uh, you know, the white elephant, uh, touched the womb of Buddha's mother after the palm sure. bent down and, and Mary was uh, a virgin and, and so on. Where, where are you on these, uh, sorts of stories? Uh, is there such a thing as virgin birth? I don't think so. I mean, it, I mean, it, it... It's an important concept mythically. I mean, I'm with Joseph Campbell and and um, Carl Jung on this question. I'm not not Jung necessarily, but certainly uh, Joseph Campbell. Um, that you know, the, uh, the virgin birth is a is a motif found in the scriptures and literature connected with the various religious faiths, and it seems to be connected with the notion of purity. You know, I mean, we don't mm-hmm. like our you know, I mean. In, in both the Eastern traditions and the Western traditions, although the Western traditions are worse, are, are worse in this regard, everybody has a natural tendency to associate the sexual dimension of their being with animalistic notions around sin and instinct and all that sort of thing. So there's the automatic human tendency to want to have purity, something transcendent, above and beyond the fleshy, the fleshy body fluids and everything associated with our bodies. And so the, the natural idea of this virgin birth thing naturally occurs to everybody, all these great sages in all the religions who want to come up with ideas that people can relate to around purity. The notion of a virgin birth comes to mind, first and foremost, as, of as a means of, of communicating the idea of purity. But um, then that, unfortunately, that... what it also does is it implies that sexuality is bad and sinful and all that. Yeah. That's exactly where I was going to go. So it, it feeds this concept of sin, which you challenge, basically, in your book. Flesh that for us, if you will. Well, sin is, I mean, <clears throat> it's an important concept in Orthodox religion for keeping people in mind. It's very good for moral training of young people. But unfortunately, and this is, you know, 
a really profound consequence of the way that the Abrahamic Western traditions developed. The notion of this transcendent God, you know, everybody identifies with this transcendent God, looks down upon the earth, looks down upon nature, and, you know, so that it is inherently masculine because it wants to manipulate and control the environment. It's a little bit inherently destructive of the environment because it wants to manipulate and control nature away from something pure. And it inevitably, God up there in his transcendence is perfect. The earth down here with all its, with all its creative bodies and trees and sinful fluids is bad. That's the inevitable philosophical contrast that takes place in the believer's mind. And so the notion of sin gets connected not only with our bodies, but with, you know, um, you know ideas against, and again, this is in the fundamentalist dimensions of all three Western faiths. You don't worship, you don't like nature too much, because that involves polytheism. The notion that if you give right. reference to things in nature, if you appreciate the beauty of nature too much, you're getting into polytheism. Nonsense! You know, both are true at the same time. So the notion of sin is good for young folks, for training people morally, but at some level you, you need to understand that our inner nature, our original, pure, beautiful inner self, which is one with God, is perfect and beautiful, just like it is. And we I'm are... I'm going to have to cut you off right there, Dr. Lowe. Right. I'm sorry, we're out of time, and I want okay. everybody to know you've got about 30 seconds how they can reach out to you and learn more about you or get your book. Okay, David Lowe, MS as in Masters of Science. David Lowe, no E on that name. David Lowe, L-O-W-M-S-P-H-D.com is the website. Uh, David Lowe at Spirituality.com is, uh, no, I mean, David at WorldSpirituality.com is my email. Easy to get me that way. Or um, just get the book, Universal Spiritual Philosophy and Practice. Ebook. Or Amazon or Smashwords, you can get the ebook or the hardback copy. Um, a great short textbook summarizing all the all the consistent teachings and practices in the religions in a fun, interesting way. Pictures were balloons, but also profound at the same time. You're yeah. a guest that I could definitely use two hours with, Doctor Lowe. Will probably ask you to come back. I want to thank you all for right. your work and for your willingness to share your ideas with us. Thank you so much. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. Okay? Until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.